Discerning Hearts provides content dedicated to those on the spiritual journey. To continue production of these podcasts, prayers, and more, go to discerninghearts.com and click the donate link found there or inside the free Discerning Hearts app to make your donation. Thanks and God bless. Discerninghearts.com presents Pathway to Sacred Mysteries with Dr. David Fagerberg. Dr. Fagerberg is a professor of liturgical theology at the University of Notre Dame. He holds an MA from St. John's University, Collegeville, and an STM from Yale Divinity School, and a PhD from Yale University. His books include Theological Prima on Liturgical Asceticism, Consecrating the World, Liturgical Mysticism, and Liturgical Dogmatics. Pathway to Sacred Mysteries with Dr. David Fagerberg. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. There are as many mystics as there are Christians. There are many evangelists as there are Christians. There are many, as many apostles as there are Christians. This is the lay apostolate that Vatican II spoke so forcefully about. The uh, most overlooked document from the Second Vatican Council, I think, is Apostolicum Axiositatum, the lay apostolate. This is what you're supposed to be doing. Well, uh, no, I'll let Father take care of that. Sorry, you didn't sign on to sit in the bleachers. You're, you're on the team. Now, this is how you are supposed to express in your life, which will be different from the way she expresses it in hers or he expresses it in his. In your life, this is how you manifest to others the mystery of Christ. Oh, but my life is so mundane. <laughs> I have nothing going on. I just have, I have to go home. I got to make dinner. I got to go to work. I got to come home. I got to maybe call my mom this week. I got to, I don't have the, the great mission or the great thing. I'm, I'm, but it, it's perfect because where is it supposed to be expressed? In the mundanus, in the mundane, in the world, in your cul-de-sac, in your apartment building, in your job. So this is uh, bringing liturgy, theology, asceticism, and mysticism into our daily life, or bringing our daily lives into them, however, whichever direction you want to describe it. I have a little book titled Consecrating the World, and I wanted to publish it under the title Mundane Liturgical Theology, but the publisher said, no, that will never sell. (laughs) So uh, we call it Consecrating the World, and then I put it in as a subtitle. And the uh, starting point there is from a passage from Paul VI, who says consecrating doesn't mean removing something from the world. It means restoring the world to Christ's reign, Christ's rulership. My life is too mundane. Well, then what do you mean when you pray the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come? Let it arrive in the church building on 5th and Main on Sunday morning, but uh, I don't expect your kingdom to come into my daily life. Really? That's where Christ planned to show up. Uh, your question was a perfect setup. I'll send you your dollar after the <laughs> My life is too mundane. Yes, this is the sanctification of the secular realm. That's what the laity are called especially to do. That's what Lumen Gentium and uh, Agentus and Apostolicum are all talking about. And it's funny, isn't it? It's a nice tension. Vatican II is talking about the universal call to holiness, and placing the baptized lay Christian where he or she is 
wait, which do you want me to do? Uh, yes. Mm-hmm. Call to holiness is here, and it's now. But I think it could be said by some that suffering the thousand pinpricks that come in a day or suffering the mundane, the doing over and over again, I would rather do the big thing. Oh, yeah. I'd rather, I, I feel I need to be out there and suffer, not necessarily as a way to grandize themselves, but because the little things demand so much. I suppose it's genuinely felt, but I'm also first suspicious of it. I first think that thought comes from the old Adam. Mm-hmm. I think it's a uh, way out. Or, listen, I don't have to uh, accuse anyone else. I can confess myself. It's easy to love mankind. It's human beings that I have my problems with. Yes, so where are you going to practice your asceticism? Not sitting in your office, reading a book, and thinking lofty thoughts about the human race. But when that colleague bugs me in this office meeting, when uh, one more time... Uh, I have to admit that Elizabeth is right, but I'm uh, too stubborn to do so. Overcoming those passions of um, pride and vainglory and ego and uh, avarice and gluttony and and envy and backbiting, tiny little actions, uh, day by day, movement by movement. John Chrysostom has a terrific homily on, I think, Ephesians. I can look it up, but uh, we're talking here, in which he says that the poor that you meet in the city um, public square, the poor are another altar on which you can make your Eucharistic sacrifice. You're so happy to have been in the church where there's this stone altar that was uh, honored and revered because it bore upon it the body and blood of Christ. Well, Here is Christ in the person of the poor. Look how generous God is to you. He's given you a thousand chances a day to make another liturgical act, another Eucharistic sacrifice. And just when I uh, think I've satisfied my quota, he sends another one to me. What a good and generous God we have. Now you're sounding like St. Teresa of Calcutta. Yeah. it's, it's a way to uh, daily capacitate ourselves to go back and do our sacramental liturgy with full heart and full throat and full mind and full will, and then be fed so that we can go back into the world and continue our spiritual warfare with the passions and our spiritual um, service and goodness towards our neighbor. In and out, in and out, uh, inhaling and exhaling. But the mystery, can we call it again, it, it's in, with, and through. It's, it's through, with, and in him. It's all, it's right. all around. It's, it's our living out the Paschal mystery. And I think it, it was you who said that that's what mysticism in a very real way is. It's lived out in the Paschal mystery. It's a nice serendipity. I've just confessed that I don't have a firm dictionary definition of 
mystery or mystic or mysticism in mind. And now we look to the catechism when we find Paschal mystery. My participation in the Paschal mystery is my mystical life. Well, how do I participate in that? In external ceremonial liturgical sacramental structures, but also in internal, personal, heart, spiritual, mystical. And in order to do either of them, this uh, capacitation or asceticism uh, struggle against the egotism of the old Adam. Yeah, the, the thing is, you know, in, in even mentioning someone, for example, like Mother Teresa, St. Teresa of Calcutta, that she, I think, would say, it's not her, that she would say, let me get out of the way. When you go to Europe and you go into these Gothic cathedrals or you go to Rome and you go to some of the, the older churches, what you see often is the image of Mary nursing Christ. You don't see that in the United States very much. I don't know if we're uncomfortable with that or whatever that is. But you know, I'm beginning to see in even my older years now that Mother Teresa was nursed by the church as she feeds Christ not only who dwells in us, and we are living out that Christ-like life, we need to be nursed by it. So in a very real way, would you say the mystic has to be nursed by the church? I don't, I, I don't know if people will listen to that and go, oh, what does that mean? No, that's right. The mother church, I said I've been reading in this uh, set of spiritual writers, and they frequently circle back to Mary and ask Mary to assist us. And the Mother Church, Mother Mary, one. Here's a um, connection that one of them spurred to me. Uh, I'm not good with languages, uh, I confess that. But the advantage it gives me is that single words show up to my attention like diamonds. I don't see the whole sentence, I just see these single words. And I love to look up etymologies, original uh, meanings of words. When a word sounds kind of cockeyed in a sentence, uh, I wonder what is the original meaning there that brought the word there? Well, here's the sentence. Canon law, catechism, liturgical documents speak about us assisting at Mass. You assist at Mass. I, a layperson, go to assist at Mass. Oh, what, are you the cantor today? Uh, are you going to be the usher? Are you taking? No, no, no. He's talking about the ordinary person in the pew assists at mass, and the uh, root of it is from the Latin assistere, which means to stand by, to take a stand near, to attend. I assist at mass because I go and I stand near the altar, where the priest, because he's ordained, can make this consecration, and the spiritualist tradition describes us standing near the Eucharistic altar as Mary stood near the cross. That's where the strength must come from. You can't leave the cross. You have to stay there at the cross. You have to assist at the crucifixion. Oh, that sounds bad too. It sounds like you're one of the soldiers with a hammer in your hand. To stand nearby, to assist. Well, I want to be an assistant liturgist. I want to stand where Christ does his liturgy of glorifying the Father and sanctifying 
mankind, including little old me. I want to be an assistant liturgist. I want to stand nearby the way Mary stood near the cross. Christ stands near us. He assists us. But we must go to the place where the heavenly manna is distributed, where the water from the rock flows to us, where the blood and water come from his side. I uh, hope it's not too irreverent to confess the image was that if the water and the blood from the side of, of Christ on the cross is the sacraments coming to us, we should follow the sacraments to Christ. We should be like salmon swimming upstream into the heart of Christ. That's what our assistance is. That's where we get our assistance. Yes, uh, we're nursed by the church. Christ gives us his body and blood to eat. Your uh, questions make me think of all these little anecdotes, which uh, over the course of a semester get dropped in here and there. Uh, I think this fits. What we're talking about is in and out or a uh, respiration of. Uh, sacrament and sacrifice, receiving and giving. I participate in the sacrifice of the Mass. I assist at the sacrifice of the Mass. There's an article by a French theologian named Philippe Rouillard who describes four ways that religions, not just Christianity, not just Judaism, but four ways that religion has used food. Food is used in uh, religion. One is the God eats the man. There are um, religious rituals where you crawl down through a tunnel under the earth and come up inside a cave, and the God has eaten you. The second is uh, the man eats the God. Aztecs baked bread in the image of their God, and they ate it. Man eats in memory of something the God did, or man and the God eat together at the table. Panas means bread. Kum panas means to bread together. Companion. Companionship. Well, when I first heard those four, smart doctoral student I was, I was immediately able to connect three of them to the Eucharist. Man eats the God. Is there anything at all in the Eucharist that gives us some sense that we're eating uh, the God? Take and eat. This is my body. Man eats in memory of the God. Anything at all in the Eucharist that um, can make me think and do this in memory of me? I hope all our listeners are nodding their heads. Anything about eating together, breaking bread together, we're his companion. And isn't it remarkable that the point of the resurrection is that not only Peter, James, and John have companionship with Jesus, but we still have companionship with Jesus. Oh, but there's that fourth one still left over. The God eats the man. And I did not understand that one until I became a parent. And we'd been out raking leaves and jumping in them all day. And then we came in and uh, had a bath. And you normally can't get the kid into the tub, but now he can't get him out. And then put him in his uh, new uh, feet pajamas, freshly washed. They didn't smell a pee anymore. And uh, read Goodnight Moon again and tuck him in uh, and put that blanket uh, 
close around his neck with that binding on it, and you say, oh, I love you so much I could just... What a strange thing to say to a child just before he falls asleep. I could just eat you up. Nightmares during the night? Is he going to put up a string of cans on his door to, in case you come in? Why do we say something like, I could just eat you up? I tell my uh, students, I want you to think about this because college prepares you for life. And one day, this is going to fall out of your mouth and you might want to know why it happened. Mm -hmm. Well, there's a boundary around the human being called the skin. And there are two ways to trespass that boundary, sex and food. And that's why both of them have been used in mystical imagery. I love you so much I could just eat you up means that I actually would take the other into me. And ever since then, becoming a father and thinking of that, at the Eucharist, not only does the Father in heaven lay himself upon the altar for me to eat, but now my daddy in heaven says, oh, lay yourself on the altar. I love you so much. I could just eat you up. Say, I think we're talking about something mystical here. Mm -hmm. Say, I think that the daily average baptized liturgist is doing something mystical. I think there's a liturgical mysticism going on here. So, Mary feeds us at her breast. Christ feeds us at the breast of his church. We feed Christ ourselves. There's uh, stuff going on back and forth here. This is the mystery. Yeah, I, I think of uh, when you were saying that, of times I've gone to daily mass and you see uh, those elders of our community who now have the time, maybe, or maybe always have been <laughs> going, but praying there and praying for their grandchildren, yeah. praying for the world, praying for things that they wish might've been, who knows who it is, but they, and they're giving it all on that altar. Yeah. They're giving it. And he feeds on that. He takes that, doesn't he? I mean, yeah. isn't that what it is? Yes. That, that action, that all that weight you're giving them all of that. And it is a, a taking in. It is a consuming, yes. isn't it? And we can do different kinds of liturgies at different times of our life. And when you're a young person trying to make a career, and when you're a young parent trying to make a family, it's different than at another stage of life. That would make an interesting uh, article or book or a set of books, what would liturgy look like at various stages of life? The grandmother in the rocking chair on the porch praying is supporting the family, the way uh, Moses did when he was on the hill and held his arms up and the battle was being won. I think that's the, when we say liturgy has a power, we also say prayer has a power. The, the mystic we turn to because they seem to have a connection or a power. There's a force, but it's, it's a life-giving force. And maybe that's something that we can break open another time. I think that life-giving force is love. That would sound like a safe answer. Yes, it would. We'll return to Pathway to Sacred Mysteries with Dr. David Fackerberg in just a moment.
Did you know that Discerning Hearts has a free app in which you can find all your favorite Discerning Hearts programming? Father Timothy Gallagher, Dr. Anthony Lillis, Deacon James Keating, Mike Aquilina, Dr. Matthew Bunsen, and so many more are found on the Discerning Hearts free app. Did you also know that you can stream Discerning Hearts programming on numerous streaming platforms such as Apple Podcasts, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Pandora, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, and so many more. And did you know that Discerning Hearts also has the YouTube page? Be sure to check out all these different places where you can find Discerning Hearts. Take, Lord, and receive all my liberty, my memory, my understanding, and my entire will, all that I have and call my own. You have given all to me. To you, Lord, I return it. Everything is yours. Do with it what you will. Give me only your love and your grace. That is enough for me. Amen. Hello, my name is Deacon Omar Gutierrez, and I want to ask you to support Discerning Hearts in a special way. We, Chris McGregor, the board, and I all know that not everyone listening can help financially. We know we have listeners from all parts of the world, and we have made a commitment since the beginning to make the truths shared through Discerning Hearts totally free. So while you may not be able to contribute financially, what you can do is certainly pray, but also give us positive reviews on whatever platform you use to listen to us. If it's iTunes, Android, Stitcher, Spotify, however it is that you get these podcasts, or if you're on YouTube and you like our videos, please give us a good rating and write a review. The more good ratings and reviews we get, the higher our profile, and the more listeners will discover us, listeners who may have the means to contribute in the future. Please consider rating us and writing a positive review today. We now return to Pathway to Sacred Mysteries with Dr. David Fagerberg. Why? Why do we do all this? Why liturgy? Why worship? Why are we called to do that? Chesterton was asked why he became a Catholic, and his answer was because of sin. You and I were chatting about Chesterton off record here a minute ago, so naturally he came to mind. Why do we do all this? Because we're sinners and because we have a God who loves us passionately. And so this is what uh, God has done in order to uh, rectify the problem. I think God always had intended to uh, bring us uh, home to him, to let us join the life of God, to enter the perichoresis of the Trinity. Uh, It's not like that was plan A, and then after the fall in the Garden of Eden, he moved on to plan B. Redemption is a completion of creation. Creation was the beginning of redemption. So his goal is for our sanctification, our adoption, our uh, deification. And God gets the ball rolling with uh, salvation history. We do our part by um, synergizing, cooperating. Once I had this short conversation in the hallway 
the uh, chair of the department asked if this summer I could teach a, a course on liturgical history. And I had the following long thought in my head, but it only actually took one second, uh, and then I'll get to the end of it. Could I teach a course on liturgical history? Yes, I suppose I could. Where should I start? Probably with Abraham. No, Noah would have to be in there. Well, wait, actually, you'd start with Adam and Eve, and the fall is the forfeiture of their liturgical career. And then the salvation history is a... um, process by which God brings us back to the relationship we should have had with him, but we don't, and it restores our cosmic priesthood until we're made apprentices to Christ, who is the premier liturgist. Now, that will be a liturgical history. Oh, oh, then I realized he just wanted to know if I could give a history of the liturgy. Now, for me, that's the flip between a thin and a thick. A thin definition is uh, there's this ceremony, this ritual. Uh, For me, that's the part of the iceberg that's visible above the waterline. It's only one-tenth, but it's connected to this huge activity of God underneath the waterline. And so uh, liturgical history is more than a history of the liturgy, like the church is more than the Jesus Club, like an icon is more than a picture, like a homily is more than simple instruction, like scripture is more than history, like symbol is more than sign, and like sacrament is more than souvenir. Uh, that's why we do it. Uh, not because you must like this sort of thing. I like some fancy pants gigas uh, to my religion. To enter into liturgy is to enter into the liturgia, the uh, underground stream of God's salvation history. It's so much deeper, isn't it? It is. And yet we feel it, we, we put it on the level of ceremony mm-hmm. somehow. And, that is, and to say that it's ceremony isn't the difference between putting clothes on the body and missing the body? I don't know. Maybe that's way too simplistic. You make me think of clothes on a body or flesh on a skeleton. When the flesh is put on, it's uh, so that the person can move. Or maybe it's putting soul into the body, which uh, keeps you from being a corpse. Liturgy is this life of the Spirit, the life of Christ shared by the Spirit in us. and that then doesn't just affect our uh, standing and sitting in the pews. It affects how we treat our neighbor and how we uh, discipline our passions and the uh, ultimate goal of life. Some author, I swear he wrote it, but now I can't find it anymore, said that worldliness is taking the world without reference to God. Nothing wrong with the world unless you took it without reference to God. And so that's the question. Do we have our eyes on the horizon, on the eternal eschatological horizon? Liturgy, the liturgical stance or posture, is about uh, taking the world with reference to God, our creator, our father, our lover, our divine master. To uh, connect the part of the liturgy you can see, the one-tenth above the waterline of the iceberg, with the nine-tenths underwater, would be to connect cult and cosmos, sacred and profane, church and world, what uh, Jean Corbon calls a uh, ritual liturgy and lived liturgy, a connection between liturgy, theology, and asceticism. So this thing isn't as simple and small and disposable as we think it is. 
It's uh, cosmic in scale. It has cosmological consequences. And it is uh, eschatological in ambition. It's uh, taking us up to the throne of God where we will do liturgy all our eternity long. Mm. If you don't like doing it now, uh, you're not going to enjoy heaven. You know, when you were saying that, I couldn't help but see in my mind St. Francis. And he may not have even been in a church, but when he was out in all the creation, he was praising. Mm-hmm. And when he kissed the wounds of the leper, he was praising. He was glorifying. He was giving. Is that, in essence, a part of it? Not, not all of it, but is, there, is that an aspect of that diamond you have spoken of? I think it is a word that we might introduce to what you just described would be uh, Eucharistia, Thanksgiving. This is lived Eucharist. Mm -hmm. Uh, The only sin is not being a saint. It's a sin not to find that the cosmos is made for Eucharist, for thanksgiving to God. It's raw material for Eucharist. Well, that's not only what happens in the uh, sacred realm, in the cult, in the ceremony, above the waterline. It's what happens to your lifelong Oh, so why do we need the cult? Why do we need the sacramental liturgy? If we've got uh, the world, I could just sleep in and uh, notice the sunrise on the golf course, and I'll uh, say, thanks, God, and then everything will be fine. Mm -hmm. Well, there's a pesky problem of sin again. We need the supernatural forgiveness that's bestowed in the sacraments, the infusion of the gifts of the Spirit, faith, hope, and love in baptism in order to awaken this new life, to instill this new life in us. So I can do the world the way it was meant to be done if the cataracts of sin on my eyes were taken care of. And that's the rhythm for me between going into the cultic sacramental liturgy and coming back out into the cosmic personal liturgy. Then my life becomes Eucharistic, but it becomes that because I am assisting at the Mass. I'm standing near. I'm standing by the cross. So people like to grab those Christians like St. Francis who kind of rubber stamp their idea of getting close to God in nature, but have they really dealt with the problem of sin with the interior? I sometimes say that Americans like spirituality because it has no shape, no structure, no uh, force to it. For most Americans, the idea of spirituality has the texture of a jellyfish. Asceticism is vertebrate spirituality. It has a backbone. There's a discipline to it. It has a sacramental, grace-filled component to it. So this is different from just the self-help books on the spiritual shelf in the bookstore. This is uh, what the saints are up to in the desert. And when Francis comes across a leper, and when Mother Teresa comes across a dying person in the street, And when a mother comes across her child who needs compassion, when a father, okay, you get the point. It uh, carries itself out into the world. But maybe is the big question that uh, your work tries to address is how the churchy stuff relates to life stuff. We'll continue our conversation with Dr. Fackerberg in our next episode. You've been listening to Pathway to Sacred Mysteries with Dr. David Fackerberg. 
to hear and or to download this conversation, along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs, visit discerninghearts.com. Or you can find it within the free Discerning Hearts app. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission. And if you feel us worthy, consider a charitable donation, which is fully tax-deductible, to help support our efforts. But most of all, we hope that you will tell a friend about DiscerningHearts.com and join us next time for Pathway to Sacred Mysteries with Dr. David Fagerberg.